It's very nice to hear. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29 for the reading of God's Word. And at the expense of seeming formally liturgical, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Up, down, up, down, up, down. You may notice in your Bible a prologue in Revelation and then the beginning of the letters to the seven churches. We've already heard from Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and now right in the middle of the seven churches we come to the church at Thyatira and hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses, refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him will I give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace. And to the hearers, you may be seated. Toleration. Toleration. That's what our cultural moment dreams as its highest value. Could Christians actually be judged for, by Christ for the very thing that our self-doned cultural thought leaders prize so highly and preach so regularly? Could Christ render our church impotent due to not just what we do, but due to whom we tolerate? You see, Thyatira had the opposite issue as Ephesus. Ephesus wasn't loving. They had lost their first love. Thyatira was loving. Ephesus didn't tolerate Jezebel's. Thyatira did. Further down the slide than Pergamum, who simply tolerated the teachings of these types of leaders like Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And now we hear introduced to us today a figure like Jezebel. Further down the slide than Pergamum, who tolerated the teaching, now they're allowing open practitioners of sexual immorality. They don't want to make waves. They don't want to lose members. Jesus sees every last bit of it and instructs the church on how to be faithful. Faithful to discipline without losing their devotion. 
faithful on how to lose a false teacher without losing their love. There is freedom in Christ, but not freedom as a license to sin. The word liberal actually means freedom. This is the misapplication of freedom. That's what's going on at Thyatira. We are free in Christ, free indeed, free to follow Christ, but not free to bear false witness in the name of Christ by the outward way we live our lives. Sexual immorality is intolerable to Jesus. Let that be clear. These must repent or face the right justice of Jesus Christ. So in short, according to Revelation 2, 18-29, Jesus' letter to this late first century church in the valley of Thyatira needed to hear how to walk and chew gum at the same time, as we say. Needed to learn how to love and discipline, as we say. They needed to know how to have grace and truth. They needed to have the full counsel of the Word of God applied to their church, both loving and discipline, or loving discipline. So I've titled this message, Take Care Whom You Tolerate. Take Care Whom You Tolerate, or Be Intolerant. And we're going to take it on its parts today, looking at verses 18 and 19. Jesus speaks of praise. And then secondly, verses 20 to 25, Jesus speaks of punishment. And then thirdly, verses 26 through 29, Jesus speaks of promises. So follow along today as we examine God's Word for application to our church and to our lives as we hear Jesus speak of praise, punishment, and promises. Let's refresh on the first point, shall we? Look at Revelation 2, 18. Jesus speaks of praise. This is a letter that is carried to the church by a messenger or an angel of that church. It seems specific. This messenger or angel seems specific to that church perhaps a pastoral figure in that church. And this is given to that messenger by the Son of God. The Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It also says that this Son of God, this Son of Man, says He knows your works. He knows what's going on in the churches. He knows your deeds, some translations may say. And then he puts together a series of yours, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And you may recognize that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, where Jesus says to the church at Ephesus the exact opposite. He says, you've abandoned your deeds that you did at first. You've gone away from the good deeds that you did at first as far as being a loving and a careful and a servant-minded church. He says the exact opposite to this church at Thyatira. He says, actually, with regard to love and service, diaconia, a word we use in some context to refer to deacon service, he says your service and your affection for one another, the way you care about one another, this is a church you'd want to be in. You actually are doing a better job of loving one another now than you did at first. Notice this praise from Jesus. Uh, His praise that's worthy of himself for his attributes, which are so good for us, but also his praise of his people and the good things that they are doing. He has not anathematized this church, though sexual immorality is a characteristic of this church. So there's hope there. 
in the midst of a stern rebuke. We'll get to that in a moment. Right now, let's listen to Jesus speak of praise. Praise Jesus himself this morning as we worship together. Look at verse 18. Jesus gives words to his church as the Son of God, likely referencing Daniel 3, Daniel 7, Daniel 10. This is God, this is God's Son. He's speaking to us, the Son of God. This is deity, this is Jesus. And he has from head to toe covered, from eyes to feet. You know, feet like brass, eyes like fire. You may have heard it said. This Son of God, this Son in glory, is picking up on descriptions from, he's already mentioned from verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. If you let your eyes scan over there to chapter 1, verse 14, it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze. And so this is picking up on description, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, perhaps from Ezekiel, certainly from Daniel. And this description of Jesus is a description of the Messiah that was to come, that is to be praised. So just like it's Christmas time, we talk about the coming of the Messiah, and we imagine His second coming as well as faithful Christians, we realize that He is the one to be praised. He's not like us. He's not polluted by original sin. He's not polluted by our fleshly endeavors. He's perfect. He's never sinned, and that's why He could be a suitable sacrifice for us. And so that guides us as His people not to a place of pride, but to a place of humble worship. We don't bring anything to the table of our salvation. He's done it all for us, namely because we're not like Him. We couldn't sacrifice for ourselves. He did what the blood of bulls and goats could only foreshadow, and that is a more perfect sacrifice. So this Son in glory is praiseworthy. Wouldn't you agree? He's so praiseworthy. He's worthy of your praise. And this very Son... This very Son has eyes to see penetratingly, perfectly, personally, every single thing inside of you. Everything. In another part of this text, it's going to say that He is able to search your mind and heart. Grammatically, it's actually the kidneys in the heart. It was the only two organs that the Egyptian embalmers left inside the corpse of a human being that was embalmed. And so he could see the whole thing, the, 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 the inyards that were left, everything. He could see everything inside you. He could search it all. Probably also a reference to Jeremiah's text on this. He could see everything. His eyes penetrate all the way inside you. It's like Numbers 32, 23. You can be sure of this. Your sins will find you out. There is no hiding from this son. He sees everything you think, everything that you do, everything you want to do. And so that is, it should be absolutely crushing until it's liberating. It should be a weight and a burden until you realize, oh my, he knows me. There's no hiding. There's no crevice he doesn't know. And yet he has sought me. It's amazing, really. He sought us to be his holy bride. The Bible ends with a great wedding, and we're the bride. Surprise, it's us. So from heaven, he came and sought us to be his holy bride, as we sing. This is the church's one foundation, and so he's praiseworthy. This is the words of the Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. This is a symbol of judgment, to be sure. It's also a symbol 
of power over the Thyatirans. Each trade guild, you see, had a deity, a pagan deity. And to be a functioning member of that society, you would need to worship that pagan deity, lest that deity would judge your trade guild and your business would go under or do poorly. And so there were economic ramifications, there were life ramifications for the faithful Christians at Thyatira that wouldn't just go along with the trade guild. One of the well-known aspects of trade there was bronze work. And it is very likely that this bronze is not only a reference to Jesus' attributes or to, his, to, to the way that the Old Testament talks about him, but, but also it's likely in, inputted here as a self-designation meant to say, even if you feel puny now, you're not going to feel puny then. I am powerful and my feet are better, stronger, able to get further than the feet of those pagan deities that are indeed impotent idols. You don't have to go along with the idol worship, even if it costs you your life. You don't have to do what the culture says you have to do. Especially in the church, you don't have to tolerate that which the Lord Jesus himself says is intolerable. These attributes of the Son of God are not just sort of thrown out there willy-nilly. They're there to speak specifically to the situation of a church like Thyatira. And make no mistake, this letter is to all churches for all time, not just Thyatira. The text makes it clear, if you read it on balance, that this is for all the churches, even though it was specifically for Thyatira. Differently, church, if you're a person that's strong on love, but also, unfortunately, strong on going along to getting along in society, even to the point of sexual immorality practices, pursuits, you need to know that Jesus is calling on you, as he called on these people, to repent of that sin and to trust in him afresh and alone for your fulfillment. While we're still on this first aspect of this text, though, let me just say that this Son of God is likely a debunking of, like the bronze was a debunking of the trade guild, the Son of God is probably a debunking of the pagan god Apollos because Apollo was the son of Zeus and son of God is probably pushing back against the most known and revered pagan deity there at Thyatira. And additionally to the praise that is due Jesus, Jesus himself here speaks of praise to his people. He cares about you and wants to encourage you in that which you're doing right and in line with his commands. So he says, I know, I know what you're doing with regard to your love for one another, your faith. These would not have been denying doctrines. They just wouldn't have been practicing faithfully. It says their service, they care for one another. This would have been the kind of church that if you had a need, this would have been the kind of church that would meet your need. I think this would have been a church that you would have been glad to have been a part of. If you had to choose between Ephesus and Thyatira, just on kind of your first impressions, I think you would have felt much more, much more comforted in the church at Thyatira because of the way they served and loved one another. And yet Jesus gives them the longest prophetic oracle in the, all the letters to the churches. He comes out at them and says, no, 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 no. After he praises them, though. And we're still talking about the praise here. And it is sincere, I believe, praise from Jesus. There's no disingenuousness with this. He is to be praised, and he's offering praise for that 
which they're doing in line with what he wants. Love, faith, service, and endurance, right? We, we have to endure in our faith to the end. Perseverance of the saints is not only assured, it's also something that we're striving for. We must keep step with the gospel and walk with one another all the days of its life until we meet the Son in glory. Now, it says here that their latter works exceed the first. So precisely as I've said before, Jesus' praise for the church at Thyatira was his correction for the church at Ephesus. And precisely opposite, as we gravitate to point two, Jesus' threat of punishment against the church at Ephesus, if they didn't repent of their coldness, was the opposite threat that he then gives of punishment to the church at Thyatira. He says, I, I have this for you. You're a caring church, but you are tolerating the kind of teaching that is producing the kind of seduction and practice of sexual immorality that I despise, that I'm intolerant of. And so this is a difficult batch of verses we're about to reread, but it's an important batch of verses, especially for our cultural moment. If we take our cues from the culture with regard to sexual practices, we're not in any way going to be able to jive that with the clear teaching of Scripture, are we? That's not the time we live in. Jesus speaks of praise. Next, he speaks of punishment. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 20. But this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, she calls herself a prophetess, and she's teaching and seducing his servants or his slaves to practice immorality, sexual immorality, and additionally, not just to eat food maybe at a market that they bought, but to eat food sacrificed to idols specifically. A priest would have accepted the offerings of the pagan worshipers, uh, not dissimilar to what, under the Mosaic law, those kind of pagan offerings, it would have been a bloodbath on an altar, but then that pagan priest would have been able to take the leftovers of that animal and reappropriate it for a feast, for his own food, to try to curry favor with the trade guilds to be a part of the community. And so there would have been intense pressure to just kind of go party with the priests, to just kind of go along with it. And Jesus is giving clear instruction here that that should be a violation of Christian conscience, especially because these, these particular eating sessions were usually laced with sexual immorality. The idolatry led to the immorality, not dissimilar to what we talked about last week. This idolatry led to the immorality and therefore had to be not acceptable to the faithful Christians at Thyatira. But this, this woman, Jezebel, who styles herself a prophetess and a teacher of God's people, was seducing the servants to practice sexual immorality, to follow her deeds. Now, it's very unlikely that this woman referenced in verse 20, his name was actually Jezebel, right? We have the Old Testament reference to those that were like Balaam uh, in the former text, just above what we read here about Thyatira when you read about Pergamum. It's probably more likely that this woman had traits like Jezebel, that Jezebel would have been a, a kind of prototype for this woman and what she was trying to accomplish in the church at Thyatira. So it probably pays dividends for us to consider carefully who Jezebel was in the Old Testament, at least with a very brief amount of overview that we can have. If you want to get all the details on evil Queen Jezebel, who married northern king of Israel, 
King Ahab. You can read about it in the books of Kings, First and Second Kings, particularly end of First Kings and the beginning of Second Kings. It's quite an amazing drama, and it is, uh, it's, it's gut-wrenching at times, it's celebrative times, where Elijah calls down fire on the prophets of Baal. But suffice to say, in the difficulty of that entire epic and all of those events surrounding the time of Queen Jezebel, God's people were enticed to sin. King Ahab married her in order to have a political alliance that he thought was good for business. And she really led him and the people down a bad path, sometimes forcefully. Uh, there, there were instances, of, of course, with regard to the Asherah poles and with regard to the worship of Baal, of Baal, as we call it, there was cult prostitution. It was part of it. It's how you had fertility and the goddess of fertility in mind. You wouldn't have families. You wouldn't be able to procreate if you didn't worship this way. So the people were punished. The Israelites were heterodox. They had gone away from the true faith. And God was repulsed by it. A prophet like Elijah and then after Elisha would preach against such practices and try to, try to clean up the ugliness in the northern kingdom and in Israel and then later in Judah. But this sexual immorality was a descriptor of the unfaithfulness of God's people right up to their exile and punishment. And that needs to be a kind of, a kind of type for us, a kind of explanation for us of what happens to us if we persist in sexual immorality. You see, God will not be mocked. In this way, we reap what we sow. As God's people, one of the ways we have wonderful assurance of eternal life is when faced with a clear command from Scripture, if, when something that we're doing is sinful, we turn from it, or differently, we repent. Repentance, metanoia, literally means a change of mind or a change of direction. As God's people, we are known for repenting when faced with sin. And when we refuse to repent across time, we do great damage to our consciences, and we need to ask ourselves serious questions with the counsel of God's people about our faith. When you listen to this text today, if you have gone the way of Jezebel, then I hope that you will repent of your sin and come back to faithful following of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not simply for those that would follow a leader like Queen Jezebel. This is for those that would turn a blind eye to it. Notice carefully Jesus' warning. Notice His threat of punishment. Look at what it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Some of your versions will say that you suffereth that woman Jezebel. Suffereth. Some will say allow. You might even have one that says permit. The ESV that I'm teaching from says you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Take care whom you tolerate. Jesus speaks of praise was our first point. Here we're in the painful point. Jesus speaks of punishment. He doesn't just have things against those that are practicing the way of Jezebel. He has against those he has against those, the, things against those that are tolerating Jezebel as a legitimate instructor of God's people. Now, there are many applications here. Let's just take a few of them. Practice tends to follow teaching. Practice tends to follow teaching. The teaching of the Word of God is likely of more importance than what you've given it 
likely. In a society where morals are relative, where we kind of throw in everything together and then talk about Jesus on top of it, the idea that the thoroughness of doctrine to be pure is a pursuit that we should aid and abet, even subsidize and support, is kind of a far cry. I want you to know if you take the scriptures on balance, other than moral character, there's really only one qualification of competency to be a leader among God's people. You know what it is? It's ability to teach. That's it. Like of all the competencies we could come up with, the man of God has to be able to teach the Word of God, to rightly divide the Word of truth. That, that is, a, it is, a, it is an important calling, and it is, a, it is a calling to not be entered into lightly because the teachers of God's Word will be judged sternly for how they handle the Word. Now, why would Jesus place such a premium on something of so little importance? Answer, He would not. If we have devalued and undervalued our expectation with regard to the quality, with regard to the correctness of teaching, we are the ones in error, not Jesus. Jesus has made it clear that there are certain types of teachers that we are not to tolerate in our church. Why? Because practice tends to follow teaching. And that's exactly what took place here. This loving group didn't want to bring themselves to practice church discipline against the sexually immoral and their ringleader. They didn't want to do it. We wouldn't want to do it either. But she was teaching and seducing God's professing servants, His people, to become entangled and enslaved with sexual immorality for whatever reason and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now look at the graciousness of Jesus. It's such a model for us in verse 21. Jesus gave her time to repent. Verse 21a. What a grace. Now we talk about sexual immorality. We're sort of categorical about it. Either we don't want to deal with it or if it gets just so bad we just want it gone. It's a real problem in churches. We have to long suffer with people. It's kind of like the situation of church discipline where I think a faithful church will say, uh, you know, this so-and-so person, so-and-so person is caught in, in, in a public quagmire of sexual immorality. We're not just going to excommunicate that person. We want the church, like Matthew chapter 18 says, to go and bring the Word of God to bear on that person, to love that person well. We're not just going to excommunicate them at first statement of such a thing. We're going to go try to bring them back into faithful practice of Christianity before we really hit them with the main thing that we've got, the kind of legal aspect of the church that says, we're sorry, we can't, we can't call you brother or sister in the membership role of the church because you won't repent of obvious sin. And in order to protect the reputation of the, word, of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in order that this leaven doesn't work through the whole lump, in other words, affect all the other members and sinners because conduct permitted really is conduct taught, we're going to have to excommunicate you. And so for witness in the world, for protection of the little ones coming to faith in the church, uh, this is what we must do. Now, Jesus is, is not just really suggesting church discipline here. He's commanding it. He is going to punish the church at Thyatira if they continue to tolerate Jezebel's teaching and Jezebel's ways. 
which is sexual immorality. There was a a rather well-known preacher last year that gave a sermon where in the sermon he was trying so hard to, I believe, I'm trying to not to impute good motive to this brother, he was trying so hard to connect with new folks in the church. And he said, you know, the Bible talks about all kinds of sins. And when the Bible talks about sexual sin, it doesn't talk about it any more harshly than other sins. The Bible whispers about sexual immorality. And that preacher of some note, that well-known preacher, couldn't have been more wrong. The Bible does not whisper about sexual immorality. And it certainly doesn't whisper about it here in this letter to the church at Thyatira. If anything, the Bible shouts about sexual immorality. And that brother, as a teacher, should have his credentials called into question and should repent of teaching a wrong tone of Scripture. It's dangerous to teach like that. The Bible says, and Jesus says clearly, be intolerant of those that would soft-pedal the Scripture and would teach in an itching-ear kind of way that sexual immorality is no big deal. But you know why they tolerate it? Because it pays the bills. Talk is cheap. When it comes down to actually saying, you can't. You can't do that. Now that, that's when people say, oh, well, that's too much religion for me. I don't want to deal with that. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. Or does it? Or does it mean? Does that mean what it is to follow? I mean, read right here. What does it say? This is what I have against you, church. Verse 20. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. Verse 21, gracious Jesus, loving and truthful, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. She won't. She wills not to. The Greek word is thelo. I will wish or desire. She doesn't will to repent. And of course, Jesus can say this categorically, not only because chronological time has gone by, but because he's Jesus, he knows that she's not willing to repent. He sees those eyes, see all the way down. We have to trust the evidence at times, right? He sees it all. You can't hide from Jesus, even if you manage to, to fool your brethren in the church. You can't hide from Jesus. It says here that he gave her time, but she refused. She didn't will to repent of her sexual immorality. And so before we talk about the punishment directly in verse 24, let's just say a little bit more about sexual immorality. Um, this word, it, it, it's where we get the word family of pornography in English. That's the root word in Greek. And it is a catch-all kind of word for any kind of sexual aberration against what Christians are supposed to be about. So it could include and not be limited to fornication, which would be relations outside of the marriage covenant union. So fornication would be sexual immorality. You would be subject to the charge from Jesus here if you're engaging in fornication. You need to repent. If you are married in a union and you're having relations, whether it's digital relations or physical physical person-to-person relations outside that, that union, that's adultery. It's doubled down on with the word for adultery, which is mentioned in this text, in addition to the word for sexual immorality, which is a catch-all word. So if it's before you're in a union or you're not in a union or you're avoiding a union so that you aren't committing adultery, fornication is caught up in sexual immorality as well as adultery. So either and both of those things are what it means to be sexually immoral. 
If you have an, an, an addiction or even, frankly, just a, just a kind of a, a, a hobby of viewing digital images that are inappropriate, then that would be caught up in what it means to be a, a, an immoral person sexually. Jesus gives us time to repent. But repent we must. Only unregenerate people willfully won't repent in space when faced with the loving teaching of Christ that says, this is not commensurate with my kingdom. This Jezebel teaching is not to be tolerated, and those that practice it will reap the punishment of Jezebel if they don't repent. Look how gracious verse 22 is. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And so this from the adultery bed to the sick bed is the contrast. I'm going to throw you into this tribulation unless you repent. Still, time to repent. You can recover from your sexual immorality. This Jesus who sees to the depths of you wants you to know he searches your mind and heart, verse 23, and he will give you according to your works. Should you prove unregenerate, prove unrepentant? But we're not judged based on our works when we repent of our sin, now are we? Repentance is a fruit of faith, and when we repent of our sin, what we are doing is, is professing to the world around us our deep abiding faith in Jesus Christ, which means we're not judged based on our sinful works, which we'd be hopelessly lost in, but we're judged based on His perfectly sinless works. His righteousness has been imparted to us. This is why, friends, it's so important if you're an unbeliever that you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the end of verse 23 is a pronouncement of judgment eternally against you if you're outside of Christ. But if you will receive Christ in His kindness to you, as He's been patient with you, calling you to Himself, even calling you to repent, then He welcomes you into His family. He brings you into His family. And He doesn't judge you according to your works, but according to His works imparted to you which is the great substitutionary atonement that he offers to you based on the clear teaching of Scripture. And it's a wonderful thing. The gospel's in play here. It says in verse 23, you might be curious, I will strike her children dead. It's possible this is a reference to Queen Jezebel's children. Her and Ahab's children were killed. They were trampled on. They were judged. They were finally judged. After a string of power pursuits, Jezebel led Ahab to orchestrate the killing of Naboth in order to take his vineyard because he was just greedy. He just wanted the vineyard. And all the kids died. Second Kings chapter 9, you can read about it. It's a, it's a horrific event, but it's the, it's the right judgment of God against a Jezebel in time and space. I think this in play here is not necessarily children like little children. What's in play here is those that would follow Jezebel would be caught up in the judgment of Jezebel. You must repent. And then your works are cast aside. Jesus sees so deep into our lives. He knows every last bit of it. I want to say a word to people that have repented of sexual sin. I also want to say a word to people that, that are tolerant of it, maybe both. If you have in your past sinned sexually, I want you to know that when you repent, this is not some kind of a ruse Jesus has set out for us. If he says, 
he gives somebody time to repent. The intimation is if you repent, you're totally forgiven. It's totally gone. This is one of the things that plagues the church. It is folks that continue to carry guilt to the grave for things that Jesus not only has freed you of, but has redeemed and even restored you for Christian service. We don't do well to punish ourselves and self-flagellate for sins that Jesus says are scattered as far as the east is from the west. Now, if you are a person that just continues to feel that you just have to put an asterisk by your Christianity and your Christian service because of something you did time ago that you've repented of and your track record of faith is not that, I want you to know Jesus doesn't judge you based on that and I don't either. I want to say something to those of you, though, that I think, I think need to hear this based on sexual immorality. Um, maybe you manage your Christianity okay with regard to getting along in the world with the trade guilds and whatnot. Jesus, I don't believe, based on this text, is flattered when you speak out both sides of your mouth with regard to biblical sexual ethics. If you have an acquaintance in the world that posts an aberration of sexual purity on their social media page, it is not your prerogative. You don't have the freedom to go like and share it. If somebody comes out as gay, you don't have the liberty as a Christian to indulge in the support of their sexual immorality by saying, oh, that's really good for you. I'm happy for you. Jesus judges that kind of behavior right here because the church is not just the church in the four corners of the church. The church is the mouthpiece of Christ to the world. Lydia was involved in the trade from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple, if you read in the book of Acts. And the word was preached to her at Philippi, and she was born again. And she repented of her sins, and she walked with Jesus, and she led her household to trust Jesus, and they were baptized. You can read about it in the 16th chapter of Acts. And those people that repented had a witness to the world about what true Christianity looked like. And they had to tell the truth, regardless of what it cost them. The Bible says, Woe to him who calls evil good. You cannot faithfully follow Jesus and call evil good. I'm not saying be ugly. I'm not saying make trouble where you don't have to make trouble. I'm simply saying don't go liking and commending what Jesus has said is evil. It is your responsibility to witness the gospel. That's what you've been called to do. And Thyatira is failing at it. How could they tell it out there if they're not even being intolerant of it in here? Jesus says he'll deal with it just like he dealt with Jezebel. Verse 23 says all the churches need to know that he sees everything. Verse 24 says to the rest of you in Thyatira who don't hold Jezebel's teaching, who haven't learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I don't lay any other burden on you. 
other than, of course, being intolerant of such teaching in the church, which has already been mentioned. I'm not going to try to pile it on you here. I want you to know this is enough. Perhaps the deep things of Satan is conversed with the deep things of God from 1 Corinthians 2.10. If you want to track that, the deep things of Satan would just, it would clearly be a counterexample of the deep things of God. We're supposed to be innocent with regard to understanding evil. We're not supposed to be pursuant of it in some kind of a way to be a relevant Christian witness. That's an aberration of Scripture. We're to be innocent with regard to evil, even as we operate shrewdly in a world that's filled with it. We are the, those that live and tell the truth, and when we don't, we repent of it and walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ, who promises to restore us. And discipline is just one way that the church is complicit in Jesus' restorative practice. Amen? Also, he doesn't want to burden them any further. Is probably picking up on the same language as the council at Jerusalem from Acts 15, 28, and 29, where they only saddled or burdened them with don't eat food sacrificed to idols in the temple and don't practice sexual immorality. Look, she's going to pull it up for us. We'll just read it. Acts 15, 28, and 29. You don't want to burden them any further than that. The council at Jerusalem had a serious convention about this, and they said, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That was the conclusion of a very intense council at Jerusalem for the early church. Now, we've talked extensively here about not only Jesus' praise, but more extensively about Jesus' punishment. Now Jesus speaks of promises. Let's look at verse 25 to kind of end our second point and lean into our third point, verses 26 to 29. He says, only hold fast to what you have. In the Greek construction, it's what you have hold. It almost sounds like the wedding vows to have and to hold. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Of course, precipitating the coming of Christ, perhaps the second coming of Christ, but hold fast until I come, hold to the true doctrine, to the true teaching, hold what you have in me. And he says here to the overcomer, verse 26, to the one who overcomes, who keeps my works until the end, I give, and before I say that, just say, we must persevere. Remember, we've talked about that. We need to, we need to work together in the Lord to encourage one another to persevere to the end, this great assurance of eternal life. He says you're supposed to tell us or until the telos, until the end, make it to the end of the thing. Be an overcomer. Don't go down these paths of sin without returning to the Lord when you do trip up and fail. And if sexual immorality describes you today, it doesn't define you. I need you to repent and return to the Lord. If you need counsel on this, you need to see me or one of our elders. You need to see one of the elders' wives. You need to come talk to somebody. You do not need to coddle that sin out there. In the world, you will not, if you take your cues from the world, you'll be not only tolerated but celebrated, and it will take you down a terribly destructive path. Come to us and let us help you to live out your faith. Hold, have, and hold. Tie a knot and hang on. Come, let us help you get back to a place of strength in your faith. You can overcome. To the one that overcomes and keeps my works until the end, he says these promises. And this is our third and final point. It'll be a briefer point. Jesus speaks of promises, of his promises, and it's really promises that will be priests in the kingdom. Listen to, listen to these wonderful promises downhill from the destruction of the Jezebels. The one who conquers and keeps works to the end of him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them or shepherd them with a rod of iron. Not a, it, it's going to be judgment. 
As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, the tradesmen would have understood that. This was a blue-collar town, the building of pots and all these different industries we've talked of. He says, even as I have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've heard that phrase a lot in these passages, verse 29. So let's zero in on verse 26b through 28, speaking of when Jesus speaks of promises. Verse 26b says this, Even though you have these difficult times now in not tolerating certain things in the church, in loving one another anyway through it all and, and keeping the faith and serving one another and being a, a, two kind, a two-faceted church, loving and truthful, he says, I want you to know a great reward's coming. I'm, I have this authority over the nations and though now you feel puny in the sight of the nations, one day you're going to reign with me. And it says here, if you'll, just, if you'll just listen and let me read Revelation 1.6, and we'll flip right back. It says, Jesus has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he's made us priests. So part of the promise is we have these priestly functions in the kingdom come. And so he, he's trying to, to get us to look forward to what's going to come and trying to encourage us in the here and in the now. And he says, He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken pieces. I already commented on that. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And he says, And I will give him the morning star. The morning star. Probably a reference to Venus which would have been misappropriated paganly. Probably a reference to that, that third brightest thing they would see, thought of as a star, planet. Jesus is referred to as the bright and morning star in Revelation twenty two sixteen. Interestingly, Balaam, that greedy prophet Balaam, the book of Numbers records a construction similar to this with regard to a star. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, I believe where Balaam describes something like this messianically, prophetically. Jesus is describing himself the morning star. He's going to give them the morning star. Second Peter talks about how the morning star will dawn in your heart. Why don't we look at that together? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Shall we, where this morning star rises and dawns in their hearts? I think that would encourage you today at the end of this sermon. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Believer, look at the hope that we have. He says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He goes on to describe our current predicament, kind of flashing forward and flashing back. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who, saw, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And he goes on to talk about folks 
from the Old Testament that went down this path of destruction, and he speaks judgment over them and talks about how there will be people like this in the church today. And then he ends this book, Peter, encouraging the saints, trying to make sense out of all this. And here's how he says it. It's 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through the end of the book, verse 18. He says, Therefore, beloved, I love that, in the midst of hard teachings and hard things, Therefore, beloved, dearly beloved, since you are waiting for these, these things to come to pass. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Isn't that beautiful? Without blemish, holiness, holiness is what I long for, and at peace. I love you. We have a common faith together. We serve one another. You see, it's the better part of Ephesus and the better part of Thyatira. It's walking and chewing gum at the same time. It's both and, not either or. Verse 15, 2 Peter 3.15, take it home and count the patience of our Lord is salvation. Aren't you glad where He's been patient with you? I'm so glad He's been patient with me. Just as our beloved brother Paul, here Peter talks to the Apostle Paul, also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, and as he does in all his letters, as he speaks to them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Boy, we've seen that, haven't we? As they do the other scriptures. Boy, we've heard of that, haven't we? Verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's take about 20 seconds and consider the things of the Lord today. As a response to today's service and the teaching of God's Word, we want to take the Lord's Supper. You'll find self-serve elements in front of you in the pews. You can begin by peeling back the top piece of plastic and finding the very small wafer. The Lord's Supper is an ancient practice that Jesus instituted just prior to His crucifixion for us. Baptized members in good standing with their Bible-believing churches are encouraged to take the Supper using these elements. If it's not yet you, if you're not yet the person that meets that description, we hope you watch this, our practicing our faith, and we hope it guides you closer to a conversation about receiving this life-giving gospel. Our elders stand willing to discuss this gospel with you. This bread that's on the top, this little wafer symbolizing bread, symbolizes the bread that Jesus shared with his followers on the night of his betrayal. He took it and he said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And so as we do this, we remember Jesus' body broken for us.
There were two elements, just as we are called to both love and be holy. So Jesus gives us two elements to remember his passion. One is the bread for his body and the other is the cup for his blood. Jesus shared the cup with his followers as that which represented his bloodshed for the propitiation of man's sins. And so as we share this today, we remember that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Please continue to contemplate the things of God today. Know that our elders are available to you to talk about any of these weighty matters as you feel led. And please remain seated as we have a postlude. Our ushers will release you row by row.